You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Do you remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodsman, and the Lion, they come back to Oz to collect their reward for having killed the Wicked Witch of the West. And so they seek an audience with the great and powerful Oz. If you remember, the Lion needed courage, the Tin Man needed a heart, the Scarecrow needed a brain, and Dorothy needed to get home. And the wizard tells them, come back tomorrow. Now the group is done waiting. They've already seen him. They've, they've had their battle. They've been on a long journey, and they're done waiting. And so they demand that the wizard make good on his promises. And if you've ever read the original novel, Frank Baum writes this, The lion thought it might be as well to frighten the wizard, so he gave a large, loud roar, which was so fierce and dreadful that Toto jumped away from him in alarm and tipped over the screen that stood in a corner. And as it fell with a crash, they looked that way, and the next moment, all of them were filled with wonder. For they saw, standing in just the spot the screen had hidden, a little old man with a bald head and a wrinkled face who seemed to be as much surprised as they were. Alarmed by the lion's roar, Toto jumps and he knocks over this screen to reveal the truth that the great and terrible Oz is nothing more than a little old man with a bald head and a wrinkled face hiding behind a curtain of his own fear and pride. Well, this morning... We're continuing in our sermon series through Exodus called Deliverance and Devotion. And if you've been tracking with us or if you know the story, the table has been set now for a showdown between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And Pharaoh at this point seems to be this great and powerful ruler of this empire. There is nobody in all of the Egyptian empire who can rival his power. By the word of his mouth, he can command your execution. By the word of his mouth, he can put a whole nation into slavery. And yet now in chapters 7 to 10, Yahweh is going to roar And through a series of signs and wonders, he will reveal the truth that the great and terrible Pharaoh is nothing more than a stubborn man hiding behind a curtain of his own fear and pride. And what we're going to see as we walk through the plagues is that the plagues serve to unmask and undo Pharaoh's claim to deity. It's going to unmask and undo his claim to absolute power in Egypt. And we're going to see that these plagues are carefully designed to reveal the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and his determination to stand opposed to Yahweh. And our goal this morning is not merely to look into this biblical text to see the historical account of the Exodus, which that is part of what we're here to do. But the goal this morning is not just information. To be able to go, these are the the nine plagues that we're going to cover this morning. But our goal is not information, but transformation. Because you see, the plagues are going to tell us something about us. 
The players are going to reveal something that we need to do. And so to this end, we're going to divide our time into three distinctive movements. First, we will see a call to worship. One of the obvious lessons of these chapters is that there is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like the Lord. Remember, we saw the name Yahweh, and it it was kind of shrouded in mystery, and the rest of Exodus is unpacking who is Yahweh. And these plagues are going to be part of that dramatic revelation of who God is. And if you truly see him, it should lead you to fear the Lord and worship him. So it's a call to worship. Second, we'll see that it's a call to repentance. The plagues are going to show us that judgment is coming. I know that is wildly unpopular. No one wants to uh, come to grips with it, but the reality is judgment is coming. And when we reject God, order is undone and everything starts to unravel. And God is not looking for empty words, empty confession, but God is interested in our genuine repentance. So if you see the plagues clearly, you will see a call to repentance. And third, finally, we'll see it is a call to humility. Every plague, one after another, is an opportunity for Pharaoh to humble himself, to admit defeat, to realize there is no one like Yahweh, and to submit himself to him. And yet, at every turn, Pharaoh doubles down on his pride. He refuses to see reality, that he is outmatched, and outgunned, he won't even listen to his counsel. This begs the question for us, will we choose to harden our hearts, stand opposed to Yahweh, or in humility entrust ourselves to him? So that's our outline this morning. That's where we're headed. It's a call to worship, a call to repentance, and a call to humility. Let's begin in chapter 7 and verse 14. Hear again the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So, so far we've seen Moses and Aaron have gone in to Pharaoh. They perform a miracle to authenticate their words. Remember, their staff turns into this crocodile sea serpent and it eats all of their uh, little staffs. And that should have been enough of a display of power to go, wait a minute, we don't know, we, we can't come go toe to toe with Yahweh. And yet he refused to obey Yahweh and let the people go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship and serve the Lord. So now Yahweh comes to Moses and says, the warnings are over. It's time. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And so now the battle begins. And what unfolds over the next several chapters is a series of 10 plagues that will ultimately result in the deliverance of God's people. Now today, in our time, we're going to cover the first nine, which plays out over 
three chapters. Now, normally our kind of rhythm is to go line by line, chapter by chapter. Um, today we're going to go a little bit faster and cover because we want to see the whole forest here. We want to we want to see a broader sweep of the plagues. And so instead of going into the minutiae of each one, we're going to cover nine plagues more thematically and draw out lessons to learn. So the first thing as we step into these plagues, I want you to see is that there is a pattern and a plan to the plagues. Under our first heading of a call to worship, I want you to see there's a pattern and a plan. A plan. They're not random, okay? The first nine plagues come as a uh, three sets of three. Three times three is nine, right? That's our math lesson for today. You can thank me later. So here's the first set. You're going to see um, blood, frogs, and gnats. And then there's a second set, flies, pestilence, boils. And then there'll be a third set, hail, locusts, darkness. Now, I know at first glance, they seem kind of random. But let me show you the trajectory that's going on here. As the story unfolds, you'll find that the first plague in each set is always announced in the morning. So at the beginning of each third, Moses will come to Pharaoh in the morning to let him know what's happening. And also... The first and second plagues are announced ahead of time, meaning Pharaoh gets a warning about what's about to happen. And then the third plague in each set comes unannounced. And so what this does is it creates and establishes a rhythm. Now in this first set of three, blood, frogs, and gnats, Moses' magicians will try to go toe-to-toe with Moses and Aaron. They're going to try to, to replicate and show Pharaoh, these guys are jokesters, uh, they're, they're unimpressive, we shouldn't listen to them because we can do the same thing. So they're going to try to go uh, toe-to-toe. Now, they're able to somewhat replicate the first two plagues. So in chapter 7, when we have the Nile, uh, the water turning to blood, they're able to take small portions of water and actually turn it um, into blood, which, to be quite honest, is, is kind of impressive. Like, I'm not even sure how that works out. But here's what's not impressive. They couldn't change the blood back to water. So it, it, it's really ineffective, right? Because what you want to do is not just show that you can do it, but you want to remove the plague so you can show them, see, we're not in any kind of danger here. But they couldn't change it back to water. With the second plague, the frogs, they were also able, by their secret arts, to conjure up frogs out of the Nile. But think about it. It only serves to exacerbate the problem. If your problem is lots of frogs, how does it help you to be able to get more frogs to come out? And they couldn't get rid of them. Then the third plague in that first set, you have the plague of the gnats. And they're completely unable to reproduce the sign. They're, they're unable. What, what Moses does is he takes um, dust and he throws it up in the air and it becomes gnats. I mean, have you ever walked into like a little swarm of gnats? It's terrible. Now imagine they're everywhere. You can't move out of the swarm. No matter where you go, there is no relief. Not only can they not replicate the sign, but they're, able, they're not able to do anything about it. And they confess Pharaoh, we are completely um, inadequate in our power and secret arts to do anything about it. Listen to what they say in Exodus chapter 8. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the magicians... 
they recognize the obvious. They're just, they're just saying, hey, uh, this is just what's true. Like, we are, we are powerless. God is up to something here. And the implication is, Pharaoh, maybe we should, maybe we should call it quits. But Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he is blind to the obvious finger of God. Now, the second set of three, plagues four, five, and six, God starts to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Up until this point, the plagues would have affected the entire uh, uh, Egyptian empire. But you need to know the, Egypt, the, the Israelites lived in a separate district called Goshen. That was, if you remember back in Genesis, they get this choice land to, to raise their livestock. And it's, it's a, you know, Pharaoh at that time uh, is excited about the Israelites because uh, Joseph has helped save them from famine. He tells them, pick the best of the land. So they pick Goshen and that's where they lived. And as the flies and pestilence on animals and boils starts to afflict the land of Egypt, um, God makes a distinction that Israel in the land of Goshen is spared. So when pestilence falls on all of the livestock in the land, this little area of Goshen is protected. In fact, Pharaoh, he's told about this. Moses tells him, listen, just so you know how powerful God is, um, he is going to protect this land. So as this disease runs through the land and kills all these animals, it won't affect Goshen. And when he starts to see animals getting, you know, um, like uh, the swine flu and um, avian flu and mad cow disease and all that's going on, he sends messengers into Goshen to see, were they really protected? And look what happens, Exodus 9. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belonged to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And guess what? The next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent to behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So what is the point of this pattern and plan? It is simply to see these nine plagues are not random. It's not chance. It's not coincidental. Like these things weren't going to happen and God's just like letting them know ahead of time. No, the, this is not just some series of unfortunate events. They are planned by the power of God. Robert and, uh, Roberts and Wilson offer an excellent summary of the plagues. The first group of three plagues strikes the water and the ground as the Nile bleeds and frogs rise up from the water and dust turns to gnats. The second group strikes living flesh with swarms of flies, the death of livestock, and human skin being covered in boils. And the third group moves higher up to the skies, bringing destruction through weather, bringing locusts on the east wind and even blackening the sun. If the ancient world were a three-story house, the earth the waters and the heavens above, God brought destruction to each story and humiliated the deities that governed each. What you need to see is the plagues are a carefully designed invasion, moving with precision in stages with gradual escalation, all with the aim of showing everyone from the palace of Pharaoh into the slums of Goshen that Yahweh is Lord and there is no one like 
but not only do we see a pattern and plan to the plagues, we also see a power. I mean, just consider the spectacular details of some of the plagues. Like consider the Nile River. It's a vast river running through the heart of Egypt. I looked it up. It's like 80 billion gallons of water on average in this river, and it's turned to blood. Now, this isn't just some river. Like, we, we, we kind of think of, like, bodies of water, like, as accessories to life. Like, you can go and play in them and swim in them and canoe in them. That's not how the ancient world saw bodies of water. It was life. Where are all of the ancient civilizations? By water. Why? Because you need water to live. They do not have indoor plumbing. They cannot just open up a tap and get water. They can't walk up to the refrigerators and stick their glass in and get nice filtered cold water. No, you have to have a source of water. And not only did they rely on it for access to drinking water, they relied on the Nile to flood its banks each year so that it would irrigate, irrigate their crops. In fact, the Nile was worshipped in Egypt. It was like a god to them. It was the river of life. And yet, for seven days, this river became a river of death. Blood is like the, in one sense, it's the symbol of life. But when it's out of your body, it's a symbol of death. A just judgment on a nation that used it as a means of execution to drown little Jewish boys. All of it, all 80 billion gallons of it turned to blood. Just think about the power that that takes. In addition, it's not just the Nile. All of its tributaries, the streams, canals, ponds, pools. If you had water in a earthen vessel in your home, it also turned to blood. Now it is amazing to note that in this chapter, God was also gracious to them. It says that along the riverbanks, uh, people could dig lower and find access to clean water. Now, why is that important? Because in the midst of judgment, there's always grace. God is providing a way. If he had wiped out their water source for seven days, everyone would have died. Why? You, can't, you have to have water. You can't go three days without water, right? And so... If, if seven days, the whole nation would have died, but God allowed there to be access to clean drinking water, which is an evidence of grace that even in the midst of judgment, the Lord would provide a means to drinking water. Now consider the power of the plague of frogs. The Bible tells us that they were everywhere. Listen to this. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Frogs are everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And think about this. If a frog comes into my house, that frog is dead. It's like not even a question of like, are we gonna help him to the water? No, that frog's done, Okay. But the Egyptians were unable to do anything about it. Why? Well, one of their fertility gods, Heket, was portrayed with the head of a frog. And so frogs were sacred and protected. So imagine these people. They have these frogs all over them. They can't even make bread. It's like in their bowls. And yet they can do nothing about it. And so as the frogs swarm over the land, they just had to live with it. 
Charles Spurgeon once said, when it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means. He can use lions or lice, famines or flies, and the armory of God. There are weapons of every kind, from the stars in their courses down to caterpillars in their hosts. Friends, as the Lord of creation and the sovereign one of the universe, every single thing in all of creation is at his disposal and his command. Here we see frogs and gnats and flies weaponized to bring an empire to its knees. Consider the power and force of the plague of hail, Exodus chapter 9. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all of the land, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. The God who commands the smallest creatures can also command the heavens and weather systems of the earth. And at his word, the heavens above unleashed hell on Egypt. Hail and fire came crashing down. And yet not a single piece of hail was found in the land of Goshen. Friends, there is no one like the Lord. He is utterly without equal and without rival. But not only is there a pattern and plan and power to the plagues, there's also a purpose. The plagues are not a case study of God just losing his patience, throwing a divine temper tantrum. They're purposeful. Throughout the narrative, the Lord will declare his purposes. Let me read some to you. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. 8, verse 10. You will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 9, verse 14. So that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh, to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 10, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell them in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done to them. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord. God's purpose here, do you see the intention and purpose, is that every man, woman, and child in Egypt, in Goshen, and, and, and throughout history would know that there is a great and powerful one who reigns supreme in all the earth. And hint, hint, it's not Pharaoh. It is Yahweh. See, God is going great lengths to show, beyond a shadow of doubt, that there is no one like the Lord. And just so we're clear, God didn't need these 10 plagues to deliver his people. In fact, later he's going to tell them that. With a simple word of his mouth, he could have wiped out the entire Egyptian empire and just let Israel walk right out. He says as much, chapter 9, verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You remember earlier it, when, when 
when they first came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Well, this is the Lord answering Pharaoh's question. You want to know who I am? I am going to dramatically show you. The plagues are designed to make a dramatic and emphatic point that there is no one like the Lord. And in this sense, I want you to see that the plagues are missional. They're missional. The goal is at, as all these plagues are happening throughout the earth, as Pharaoh, as the, just like the screen reveals who the great and powerful Oz really is, as the screen it tips over, the people in Egypt would see Pharaoh's not in control. He is not to be worshipped. There is one who deserves our worship. The goal is that the people, the Israelites, and even the Egyptians would become convinced that there's no one like the Lord and that they would worship and be devoted to him. See, friends, when you see the pattern, the plan, the power, and the purpose of these plagues, the only right response is worship. That you would worship him. Now, I know we're a practical kind of people. At first, this may not sound very practical. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm just supposed to worship him. But listen, worship at its heart and its core is not merely singing songs or going to church. That's a part of it. It's one way we express worship. But worship is more about whole life worship. It's, it's living in such a way that God is not ignored or, com- or compartmentalized in your life. It's not just he gets this hour and a half of my time on Sundays or maybe 15 minutes a day uh, when I read my Bible. Whole life worship means God is at the very center of your decision-making processes. When you consider who you are and what you do, it begins with Yahweh is Lord. He is either the Lord of all of your life or he is the Lord of none of your life, and that is worship. Worship when, you're, when your heart is centered on worshiping him, you acknowledge that there's no one like him who deserves the highest affections of your heart, meaning there is no one or nothing that you love and are devoted to more than him. That he gets the deepest loyalty of your allegiance. You are not aligned more closely with a political party, your workplace, a friendship. Nothing gets your supreme allegiance. And he also has the highest priority of your attention, that you think about him often, that he becomes the non-negotiable in your life. That is true whole life worship. And when you see the plagues as they really are, it is a call to worship. But second, the plagues are a call to repentance. In Exodus 7, 14 to 25, we have the first plague where the Nile is turned to blood. We've looked at it briefly. Now look at verse 22 to 23. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take this even to heart. I want you to see that Pharaoh is completely unmoved by the first plague. It doesn't even like stir anything in him. See, this display of God's power was meant to put Pharaoh in his place, and yet he believes the lie that he is still in control. As he sees people digging for water, it doesn't elicit a shred of compassion for them. When the frogs overwhelm the land, he begs for Moses to pray to God to remove them. He even says, listen, if you will get rid of these frogs, I will let the people go. But the very moment, that the frogs went away, he hardened his heart and would not listen to the word of the Lord. 
when the gnats come and the magicians say, this is beyond our power, Pharaoh doesn't listen to the council. When the plague of flies comes, he again offers empty promises to let people go only to go back on his word once the flies are gone. When, when the pestilence comes on the livestock, he's unmoved by, by God's ability to protect Israel. As the display of power increases, as the plagues move from mere annoyance to affecting everyone's livelihood and the economy of an entire empire, he is unmoved. When his skin is covered with boils and he's seeing everyone around them deal with the sores on their own skin, you would think that that would bring him to his knees in repentance, but it does not. When the hellstorm of hail comes, his heart is still unmoved. And yet, for a moment, it seems like Pharaoh is ready. Exodus 9, 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. If you're reading this for the first time, you think, oh, okay, it's finally worked. Like here we are, plague seven. That makes sense because like God likes the number seven. This is gonna be where things turn around. And Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Like that's good biblical language, right? I have sinned and I'm in The wrong, he acknowledges that the Lord is right and that he is wrong. However, Moses sees through the charade. Exodus 9.30, Moses says, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And to prove his point, Moses prays. He he prays to ask God to remove the hailstorm. And when it subsides, if Pharaoh's words were genuine, he would have let the people go. But he refuses to budge. And he begins bargaining with the Lord. Multiple times, Pharaoh's gonna try to negotiate with the Lord. He's gonna say, okay, instead of you guys, like all of you leaving Egypt and going into this three-day wilderness journey, how about you just stay here? I'll give everyone a day off. We'll make a party over it. You guys can worship the Lord God just like right here. And Moses says, no, 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 that's not what God said. And so then uh, Pharaoh says, okay, well, how about just the men go? I'll let all the men go. They'll go have their their worship service, but we'll leave the women and children and all your things behind because he knows they're gonna have to come back for them, right? God says, no. And then he says, okay, how about you guys go but leave all your stuff behind, your livestock and all that? Because again, like people are gonna have to come back for those things. And Yahweh says, no, no, we're, we're not negotiating with terrorists. God will not negotiate obedience and repentance. It's like I say with my children, Full obedience is obedience that's done all the way, right away, in a happy way. Parents, feel free to take that. All the way, you gotta do everything. Right away, you can't, I'm not waiting on you, and you gotta do it in a happy way. But Pharaoh is not interested in that kind of obedience. And the final set of three plagues, from the hailstorm of hail to the all-consuming wind of locust and the terrifying darkness on the land, all of them prove unproductive to bring about Pharaoh's repentance. Now here's what I want you to see. The plagues are a dramatic display of judgment in many forms. It's judgment against all of the false religion of Egypt. It's judgment against Pharaoh's own claims to deity. It's, it's judgment against his uh, unwillingness to obey the Lord. It's judgment against his ownership of God's people. It's judgment against his pride and sin. And all of these plagues are to make this dramatic point. 
that when you reject God, you, uh, you are submitting yourself to the unraveling of order. See, when we reject God, even in our own lives, when you reject his rule and reign in your life, it will lead to your undoing. Tim Chester is helpful here. He says, through the plagues, God unravels creation. He sends it into reverse so that water no longer brings life. Animals no longer serve human beings. Instead, they invade like armies. Light returns to darkness and life to the dust. Creation is heading back into its dark and chaotic state. Everything falls apart. Egypt is unmade. All around Pharaoh, the very fabric of his world is falling apart, disintegrating into chaos, darkness, and death. Pharaoh and the land of Egypt have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have worshipped created things rather than the creator. And the plague served as a dramatic display of the just judgment of God. And as creation all around them starts to unravel, it's teaching a lesson that when you reject God, when you replace him with lesser gods, things will come undone in your life. Now, the point of the plagues is not for us merely to say, look what happened to them over there, but to say, am I aware of the displays of God's judgment in my life? Am I aware of the ways that God is trying to get my attention and to bring me to repentance? Listen, when we reject God, we too are unmade. Now, we may not see, like, I don't think God in this day and age brings the kind of dramatic plagues like he did. We probably will not experience Exodus-like plagues in our life. But consider the fact that we do experience the disorder of sin in our lives. Now sometimes, and we talk a lot about this uh, at Seven Mile Row, we face suffering not because of anything we've done, not because of our sin and decisions, but because we live in a broken world. Richard O'Kello's appendix is not, is not be, you know, it, the appendicitis is not because he's done some specific sin. He just, we live in a broken world and sometimes appendices fail, okay? But that's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the kind of suffering, unraveling, and disorder that comes because of our own willful, sinful rebellion. Think about this for a moment. How our own choices to reject God's order and design lead to disorder and darkness in our lives. I don't know about you, but, some, but like my sin often causes emotional unrest. That I'm in turmoil, not because of, of being sinned against, but because of my own sin. People have mental breakdowns, relational conflict, physical addictions, not because of the sin of others, but by our own sinful, willful decisions. And here's the point. As we watch Egypt melt down under the righteous hand of God's judgment, those with hearts that are softened and ready to receive God's word will say, Lord, I don't want to be hardened like Pharaoh. Let me see, Lord, how you're trying to get my attention and bring me to a place, not of empty confession like Pharaoh, but genuine repentance. You remember Pharaoh offers an empty confession to God. He says, I have sinned, right? It's, it's all for show. It's all just to get Moses to pray to God to remove the plague. Sometimes we do that. When bad things are happening in our life, we, we say these empty things to the Lord. Like, Lord, if you'll just 
Get me out of this situation this time. I promise I'll never do that thing again. God is not interested in empty words, but really genuine repentance that turns away from sin. Friends, here's a reality. Judgment is coming. We may not experience the plagues of Egypt, but there is coming a final judgment, an ultimate plague. For the wages of sin is death. Judgment is coming. We will all one day come face to face and give an account for our lives with our maker. And all along the way, I want you to see that God is gracious to bring these these plagues of disorder into our life to get our attention, to wake us up. One of the cool things as we work our way through Exodus is that you, you begin at the beginning to think this is just for Israel. But at the very end, when they are delivered, there's this verse that says, and when they left, they left with a mixed multitude, which means Israelites and Egyptians. There's actually this place in chapter 7 where it says that when uh, the hailstorm was coming, it says those who feared the word of the Lord took shelter. Meaning this, all throughout judgment, people who had hearts to hear, people who had eyes to see what God was doing, they, he got their attention and they turned to the Lord. And that as Israel is leaving Egypt, there were those who said, there is no one like the Lord. We should worship and fear him. I don't want to experience any more of this judgment. Can we please go with you? Those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe will see that judgment is coming and it will stop you in your tracks and you will repent. Friends, the plagues this morning are a call to worship and a call to repentance. And finally, it's a call to humility. Exodus 10, verse three. Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Now this verse gets to the heart of the matter. I've intentionally left this at the end. We have over and over heard about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And at this point in the narrative, we're into the eighth plague and Pharaoh is still stubbornly committed to his pride. And Yahweh asks him the question, Pharaoh, how long will you remain prideful? How long will it be before you will humble yourself before me? Now throughout this passage, you'll find three different descriptions of Pharaoh's heart. All from chapter four through chapter 15, you'll find these different descriptions of Pharaoh's heart. First, you'll see just a general description that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This is, there's no comment given on who's hardening his heart. It's just saying, hey, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And I've put those passages up there for you if you want to go back and look. You'll see several times Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Second, you'll find that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, meaning Pharaoh chose by his own will to harden his heart contrary to the Lord. He is responsible for his actions and he was actively involved in the hardening process of his own heart. And third, you'll also find that Yahweh, the Lord, hardened Pharaoh's heart. In these instances, Yahweh is the active agent in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
Now, a couple things. First, I want you to know that the heart and the Hebrew mindset is not just simply the emotional center. Like we think about it, we often divide the mind and the heart. Like the mind is what makes decisions and the heart is what feels. In the Hebrew mindset, that's not the, 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 uh, the idea. The heart in the Hebrew mindset is the whole of the intellect, the will, and the emotions. It's the seat of your desires and drives, and from it flow all of your decisions, beliefs, and actions. So another word to think about it is, in the Hebrew uh, concept of the human, the mind and the heart, really just the heart. Now the word for hardened here is the Hebrew word that means to make heavy. It means to make something heavy. So in other words, think of something being stubborn and sluggish and indifferent to the Lord. His heart, in other words, you can think about it, became like stone. It became heavy. Now, I'm not a doctor, but you don't want a heavy heart. You want a soft heart. You want a heart that's able, because what is a heart doing? It's contracting, right? It's moving. If something is heavy and stone-like, it can't move anymore. And that's what's happening to his heart. It's becoming calloused and calcified to where it becomes like stone. That's what's being described here. Now, it is worth noting that as the flow of the narrative unfolds, at the beginning we see it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart against the Lord. You'll see that through the beginning of the plagues, even through the middle of the plagues. And we see the Lord being described as the active agent near the end in plagues 8, 9, and 10. So, What do we make of all of this? This is a case study in human responsibility and divine sovereignty. If you remember, at the beginning of our study of Exodus, I said that we need stories to help us understand principles. Principles unfold and unpack the principles. So the principle here, the theology is, humans are responsible and yet God is sovereign. And those two truths live together in a mutually compatible kind of way. And this story helps us see that play out in real time. The way the narrative describes the events, we will see these two truths held together. And they're, they're good friends. They're not in a fight. They're not incompatible with one another. And you'll see this all throughout the Bible. In other words, divine responsibility and human, uh, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not mutually exclusive. They're mutually inclusive. So here's what I mean. The scriptures are teaching and showing us two true things at the same time. It is equally true that Pharaoh is, as this is playing out, is making conscious decisions to harden his heart. He is choosing to be blind to things. He's choosing not to see things. He's choosing to go like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear what's happening in front of me. And for that, he is morally responsible and must answer to God. And at the same time, so that's one truth. There's also this other truth running throughout the narrative of Scripture that the Lord is sovereignly governing and orchestrating every single event of this narrative so that everything achieves his intended purposes. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. Nothing is ever left to change. There's never a moment when God's like, I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. At every step along the way, God is able not to just say how things are going to go because he can see into the future, He can tell us how things are going to go and he knows the future because he is the one writing it. He is never out of control. Now you might be tempted to think, well, if God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, then he must not be answerable 
for his or her actions. And you are certainly welcome to indulge that temptation. But the moment you do, you are starting to depart from Scripture because that is not what Scripture teaches. The biblical view is this. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he's morally culpable and responsible for his actions. It's also true. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to achieve his intended purposes. And these two truths are equally 100% true, and they do not mutually exclude one another. God is just, he is good, and Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. Tim Chester is again helpful. Pharaoh refuses to listen because Pharaoh hardens his heart. But it's also true that Pharaoh refuses to listen because the Lord hardens his heart. We have to take both of these perspectives seriously. Pharaoh determines Pharaoh's actions and God determines his actions. Here's the line. To put it another way, Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God had freely chosen that he would do. Now you don't have to understand how that makes sense, just that it does make sense in the biblical world view. Does this make God unjust? Not for a second. Not for a second. In fact, Paul addresses this very question and uses this very example, Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Just like Pastor Kevin said, he's got to call us to wake up. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. If you read scripture, one of the things you will come away with from beginning to end, is that God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And because he is perfectly good, friends, his will never bends towards evil. So there is nothing God has ever done that we could look at and go, that's unjust or that's evil. Again, I don't understand how it all fits together. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And if we're going to walk by faith, then we must accept it as true. So that begs the question, so what do we do with that? Here's what I think we do. We take responsibility for what we have responsibility for, meaning you are freely choosing to do things. The reason why it feels like you have freedom to do what you want to do is because guess what? You have freedom to do what you want to do. The question is, what will you do? What choices will you make? If you're reading this passage with eyes of faith, you will say, then I need to make choices with thoughtfulness and care. J. Alec Mateer writes this. With these words, we are forcefully reminded that choices are the privilege and price of being human. Our privilege is that of being responsible beings recognizing moral values, called to make responsible choices, and given the opportunity and obligation to live in the light of the foreseeable consequences of our actions. That's the privilege. God has given us that gift. But here's the price. The price we pay is that every choice, for good or ill, goes to fashioning our characters, and whether in the long or short term or both, makes us answerable 
to the judge of all the earth. One of the most dignifying things about being humans is that we get to make free choices, but it comes at a cost. We will be held accountable for the choices that we make. Friends, our choices are not arbitrary. They are not fatalistic. They matter. We make real decisions, look at me, that you are really responsible for. Your choices matter. So the question is, will you make choices that lead to the humbling of your heart and the softening of your heart? Or will you make choices that result in the hardening of your heart? Because one of the truths this passage teaches is that you really can harden your heart to the Lord. You can do that. It's not a good thing to do, but you can do it. In the case of Pharaoh, he doubles down on his hardness instead of allowing the plagues to soften his heart. In the face of judgment, he doesn't beg for mercy and forgiveness. He negotiates lies and cheats. So again, it begs the question, what will you do? What choices will you make? Will you allow the warnings of coming judgment to soften your heart or will you allow it to harden your heart? Like we asked a few weeks ago, will God's word be a song to you or a snarl? Will you see the power and purpose of the plagues and come to a proper fear of the Lord that leads to a life of gladsome worship? And maybe some of you as we close are asking, where, would I, where do I start? How can my hardened heart become soft? Well, let me tell you, the, the last plague ends in darkness. It's the, the darkening of the sun for three days. With the ninth plague, the dark, darkness falls on the land of Egypt. And it points forward to another moment in time as God's history of redemption unfolds. When darkness fell, God's judgment came and the plague of all plagues was unleashed. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? See, friends, on the cross, Jesus took on our sin and the plague of all plagues, the plague of death came over him. And just like darkness fell over Egypt, darkness fell on the hill of Calvary. And on the cross, as Jesus was condemned, he became sin, though he himself knew no sin. And all the plagues of God's justice fell on him. Now, why did he do this? He wasn't condemned for his sin. He was condemned for ours because what, was he, what he was doing was accomplishing the ultimate exodus. Jesus endured the darkness of death so that in our deliverance, we would be fully devoted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when that truth enters your mind and it captivates your heart, you will find that your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. There's a great hymn by John Stalker that became repopularized by Sandra McCracken called Thy Mercy, My God. And the third stanza uh, poetically captures this biblical reality of how a hardened heart becomes soft. We're gonna sing it later, but here's the line. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness to part. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I've found. You see, our hardness of heart can be dissolved when by grace, through faith, we see and believe the goodness and mercy of God. So Seven Mile Road, 
I hope that you see the plagues in Exodus this morning. Let them reveal to you that there is no one like our Lord who is deserving of our whole life worship. See the plagues this morning. Let them be a reminder to you of the coming judgment and let it bring you to a place of repentance. See the plagues this morning and let them humble you at the foot of the cross to receive his mercy and grace.